Hi, this is Pastor Ben Fagelin from Bright Church. I'm so glad you're listening to this podcast. I hope this message inspires you, deepens your relationship with God, and that you're encouraged in your faith. We hope to see you soon at Bright. We're in a series called Seven. It's week three. It's out of the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is an interesting book. It's one of those books that people tend to sometimes leave till last, yeah? Or maybe not at all. And the reason is, is that it's quite picturesque. There's lots of stories in there or, or things in there that need to be interpreted, Some a lot of uh, symbolic things that are in there. And there's this tendency sometimes to leave that book out, but it's an incredibly important book. And I'll tell you something else. The Bible says, and in this letter specifically, more than any other uh, book of the Bible, that there is a blessing for those who what? Who read the words of this book aloud, who hear it and who keep it. And I thought for seven weeks, let's do that. Let's get some more blessing. Let's go after it. And so I tell you, this is an amazing book. Now, the book of Revelation itself, let me just tell you something because it fits into obviously the larger framework of the Bible. And the Bible is not an old-fashioned book filled with old-fashioned values that we can discard now in our contemporary culture. And the thing that would make us understand that's absolutely true is in fact what the book of Revelation itself. Because not only do we read this and receive what's in here by faith, but this book of Revelation inside the Bible points to things that have happened in our past, things that are happening in our present, and yet you betcha there are prophecies that are still yet to come. Which means what? It means that the author, whoever wrote this book and whoever authored it was clearly outside of time and space. That means what? Well, if the author's outside in time and space and these things or these prophecies are still to come in our future, that makes the values in this book timeless. That makes them timeless. So they're not old-fashioned, they're futuristic. And so we need to understand, and, and, and I think in so many ways, really appreciate what this book really is, not just the book of Revelation, but the Bible as well. And the book of Revelation does something too. It helps to make sense of the Bible. It helps to put pieces together that might be hard for us to understand. There's over 800 references just to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation itself. And so when we read this, we understand it's an incredibly important book. Like I say, there are some parts that are hard to understand. But at the beginning, there are seven letters written to seven real churches in their day 2,000 years ago. And those letters are not hard to understand. They are straightforward. It's Jesus speaking to his church and he does not mince his words in any way. These are quite easy for us to understand. And these letters provided, yes, some correction for his church and also, uh, you know, he commended his church as well. And I thought, you know what, for, for the seven weeks and at least for this series, if we understand that Jesus had things to say to his church 2,000 years ago, guess what? What he said to them is what he would say to us because he doesn't change, right? So the issues that the church was dealing with 2,000 years ago are still the issues that we face today in many ways. So we don't have to wonder what Jesus would say to us as a church today. We can simply look back through the Scriptures, see the mistakes that earlier churches made, and if we're really smart, we won't repeat them, right? 
Okay, well, that's what this series is all about. Let's make sure we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. So I want to tell you about this letter to a city. I'm going to explain a little bit about the city first. Once we understand that, the letter actually makes a whole lot more sense. And so this letter is to a church in the place called Pergamum. Pergamum. Now, in the, the way that these letters are, are written, um, yes, of course, they, they speak to the generation that they were written to and they were speaking to a real church. However, the way in which they're arranged in the Bible would lead us to believe that they have been placed in the Bible in a prophetic order because they don't, they don't just speak to the, ch- the issues that were in the church of their day, but they actually lay out the prophetic history of the church over the last 2,000 years. Now, not everybody believes that and agrees with it, but I'll tell you this. If even one of those letters was rearranged, what I just told you would not be true. But as it is, they happen to coincide with key events in the last 2,000 years, which seems to indicate that it is the prophetic history of the church. I'll let you make up your mind for that. But if we were going to say this letter was written to a church, is you know, and we, we spoke about the early church or the apostolic church, who are they speaking to in this letter? Well, obviously the church in Pergamum of the day, but historically this would be the married church. The married church. If you're new to church and you're like, married? Oh yeah. See, the church is meant to be married to Jesus. That's why it talks about Jesus having the church as his bride. And it speaks to the close and intimate relationship that we are meant to have with Jesus as the church, right? Okay, so, right? Okay, so... The word Pergamum comes from two Greek words. The first word, uh, 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 per, which means by, and gamos, which means marriage. In other words, the name of the city literally means by marriage. It was the religious capital uh, of the empire. And in this city is said to be, by legend, of course, the city where Zeus was born. And the city was beautiful. I mean, they had extensive libraries and beautiful temples. And, and sitting over Pergamum and looking down on it was the great altar of Pergamon. Pergamon, the great altar. And so it was by all accounts an impressive city. Their emblem, like a symbol that helped to represent their, their faith in that city at that time was the caduce. Do you know what that is? So, so when you uh, see an ambulance drive by, every now and then you're going to see a, a staff with two snakes that are wrapped around it and it's got wings at the top. That's what that is. And it's fascinating that that was the symbol that they used and they believed that that was the, the staff in the middle was the staff of Asculapus who was the, the God of healing. What's astonishing to me is that even though we understand that this was the, the emblem that they used in that city, that emblem is still used today in the framework and context of healing. I told you, you find it on the side of ambulances and this emblem is used all around the world. In fact, if you look at the Australian Medical Association and go to their website, you'll find that symbol on their website. Isn't that fascinating? After 2,000 years, people are still using this exact same website. We were watching a TV show last night. There was a nurse on there. She was wearing a little pin. That was the same pin. I, I, I think that this is uh, astonishing. And I'm sure that many people have looked at it and thought, where did it come from? Well, partially it came from here, but even Greek culture and mythology, they got it from somewhere else. And it's a story that might sound a little familiar to us. 
You could read about it in Numbers chapter 21. And if you go back and you were to read that story, you would discover that Israel had been complaining to Moses that they don't have, you know, they complain we don't have enough food or the right food and we don't have, you know, enough drink. And so they're complaining. And so what did God do in response to that? And this, I'll warn you, is a bit of a weird story, but it says that God sent fiery serpents that came and was, they were biting the Israelites and they were dying. And they thought, what shall we do? So God speaks to Moses and says, I want you to make a bronze serpent, bronze snake, and put it on a staff and lift it up. And when you do, if the Israelites look at that bronze serpent, they'll live. Come on, that's weird, right? It is. Don't be so spiritual this morning, right? Like, that's a strange story. And it's kind of hard to understand how that fits into the big framework of what God is doing in the Bible. You want to know what's weirder? Is that they began to, Israel began to worship that bronze snake for many years because it healed them and the legend began to grow. And so even though they worshiped the God of the Bible, it became a idol in their midst. And it wasn't until King Hezekiah destroyed it in 2 Kings chapter 18 that that ceased to be. But the, the horse had bolted, the story was out there and eventually through a couple of different ways, it's found its way to this city. I told you it's a weird story and it doesn't seem to make sense, but I reckon you already know where it might be going. How does, like looking at a bronze snake and looking at it and how does that cause us to live or cause the people of um, Israel to live? Well, let's just start with this, right? What does it represent? You guys can already know the answer to this question. Where's the first place you would see a, a snake in the Bible? This is an actual question, everybody, I'm asking you. It is an open book test, though. Dear God, let it have been an open book test. I hope that you've read the story. Where'd you see a snake in the Bible? What's the first mention? Genesis, right. It's in the Garden of Eden. And what does the snake represent? Satan. What else? Sin, great. Okay, so when we see snakes in the Bible, oftentimes what they represent is, is sin. It's weird that they would lift that sin up and then if you look at it, you'll live. Until Jesus comes along, and thank God He did because He explained it to a man named Nicodemus that was trying to understand uh, a whole bunch of things and Jesus was breaking it down for him one day. And Jesus gives us the reason as to why God did that. Listen to this. John chapter 3, verse 14, it says, and these are Jesus' words to Nicodemus. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. The snake represents sin. When Jesus was on the cross and He was raised up before people, it says, He became sin so that the sin could be destroyed and defeated. What's fascinating to me about this is Jesus called this out while He was alive even though he had no control over his death in that sense, it was going to happen at the hands of Jews and, and, and the Romans. And yet he, he said in that moment, exactly he predicted how he was going to die. Fascinating stuff. This scripture, that bronze snake is all about the gospel. It's all about Jesus. 
It's all about Jesus paying the penalty for sin. And so people could have a relationship with God through Jesus. Now, as Christian people, what do we believe? I reckon I must say this every week, everybody, right? We are saved by, through faith in, right. I often say Christ, but I'll accept Jesus in that place. (laughs) Saved by faith. I was saved by grace through faith in Jesus or in Jesus Christ. And so that's what we believe. So this whole you know, story, that, that helps to point to the gospel. I think every scripture kind of points to the gospel, but let's read the letter. Now that we understand a little bit about the city, let's read some of this letter and see how much sense it makes. So Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 says, And to the angel, which means messenger in the original language, to the church in Pergamum, right, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's a title for Jesus. In every letter, He's got a different title. His title here is what? The one who has the sharp two-edged sword. That might sound familiar, that reference, and you can find it in the book of Hebrews. And what does it speak to? What is it? It's the Word of God. Something about this letter is going to come back to the Word of God. He uses that title for a specific reason. Verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is which is not, he's not convicting them of that. He's just saying, I know where you guys are and I know what's going on. I know what's around you. And what a lot of commentators believe is that that Satan's throne is actually the great altar of Pergamon. So he says, I know where you are. I know what's happening in your city. And he says, yet you hold fast my name. That's good. And you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, the legend has it that Antipas, who was a follower of Jesus, was persecuted for his faith. And the, and, and the way in which Antipas died is they, and they would per- persecute Christians this way, uh, they made a brass bull, a large brass bull, big enough to fit people in. And then they would put the people in the, the Christians in the bull, seal it up and light a fire underneath to essentially cook them alive in that brass bull. It's pretty horrible. Well, it is said of Antipas, not that we read it here, but in other historical records, it is said of Antipas that until the moment he died, they could hear him singing praises and hymns to God. Isn't that impressive? This guy Antipas that we don't really know anything about still gets his name in that letter for everything that he did. So he says, of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So, you, or so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, which means to what? Change direction. Change the way that you're going. Come back to Jesus. So he says, therefore, repent. And if not, I will come to you soon and war against them. This is kind of scary. In in the first letter, he said, look, if the church doesn't repent, I'll take their lampstand, which means I'm going to take that church out. Here, it seems to be quite personal. He's not just talking to the church as some corporate body, but the church is God's community. We're his people. So it says he's going to come soon and he's going to make war against them with the sword of his mouth. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church is. We can all learn from this letter. He says, to the one who conquers and hears the promise, there's always a promise. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. That last part is a little bit confusing like you know a lot of people have done research to understand what's that what's that white stone about and there are different ideas but the one that seems maybe most likely is um in in this culture they would receive a white stone which became like a ticket to gain entry into the games uh, so they could with that ticket they could also buy food it would gain them access somewhere okay so if god is giving us a ticket to gain us access somewhere that just tends to make me think he said that there would be what a new name that would be written on it. And it's interesting to me that oftentimes when God wants to change a person's trajectory in life, He often would change their name in the Bible. So Abram became, Abram became, okay, Simon became, and it wasn't the first time that this happened. There were a number of times where people's names had been changed. So Jacob became, Oh, a bit more quiet on that one. Okay, Israel. So, so there would be times where people's names would be changed. What I love so much about this is I kind of feel like this is often what God does for us. He gains us access to a place that we could never go on our own. And when we get there, we are being called, I believe, prophetically into a new destiny, a new life with Him. He knows what's in our past, but He calls us into a new future with Him and gives us a brand new identity. I think that that's pretty cool, yeah? All right, so he writes this letter to the church in Pergamum. This is John the Apostle that wrote it, but Jesus dictated it. What was Jesus saying to the church? It's very interesting. You know, Sarah and I, we have been married for 16 years. And when we, thank you for that. Um, and so when we got married, uh, you know, our, we, we took our two separate lives and they came together. And they were, we had different cultures in our family. But when we got married, we formed a different culture. It was this blending of our two family cultures that came together. Now, if I had stayed on my own, my life you know, was going in one direction and Sarah's life was going in a, in a direction. But when we got married, the destination for our future had been altered by the bringing together of our lives. Does that make sense? Because once we're married, our lives totally shift and change, you know? And so we impact each other. We influence each other in different ways. I'll give you a way that we have been impacted and influenced by marrying each other. Well, I, I quite like my vegetables and I really like to eat peas. I haven't eaten peas in nearly 16 years. You know why? Pastor Sarah doesn't like them. And so who said good on it? Like, that's, that's terrible. That is not from the Lord, right? So I, 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 love, I, I, love all, I love all vegetables, right? But we never eat them because she doesn't like it. So she doesn't cook it. And I know she doesn't like it. So when I cook, I don't cook them, right? So we don't eat them. Now that's a small thing. But what I mean is there are shifts and there are changes. And, and, and you know, we impact each other. Well, when we do that with belief systems, when you, you try to merge two belief systems together, they, of course, too, will impact each other. And not the one continues to travel in the same direction, they actually impact each other and their destination would be altered and changed too. And when we bring two systems together, we call it something syncretism. 
syncretism and the destination of either belief system is forever altered it charts a new course and a, and a new place it's going somewhere we know that it's going in a different direction so you know even as a parent i i can see when things are going in a bad direction so I'm going to just try this out. If you're a parent, you'll know. I reckon you've had some experience with this, and we'll see how this goes. Have you ever gone to school and to pick up your kids, and your kids come and they start to pile into the car, and one of them, rather than picking the seat that's on the, the, the far side, they take the closest seat to the curb. And they force the other two in my house to climb over them so that they can get there. And what happens? As soon as they do it, like they open the door and they climb past and then what? They're nudging each other and pushing. Don't stop it. He touched me. You know, this kind of a thing. So, so as a parent, right, you, you've experienced this before and you go, before that fight can even get off the ground, you shut it down, don't you? So, so something happens. There's a bit of commotion in the back, right? And you say, ah, cut it out. I don't want to hear any arguments. No. Nope. You move your legs, move your feet, no complaints, right? You shut it down quickly because what? You go, I know where this is headed, right? And they say what? They go, what? We weren't doing anything wrong. We were just playing, right? Do you know how many games start off as we were just playing and ends up in a, in, in a fight about something, right? So as a parent, you can see this. We can see where it's going. So we say, no, we're not having any of it. God is saying to the church, if you start down this road of syncretism, if you try to blend the church with the world, I know where it's headed and I'm stopping it right now. And he begins by saying, I'm going to start with this teaching that is happening evidently, something to do with Balaam and Balak. Who are they? Well, Balaam was a uh, prophet for prophet. He was a prophet that you could hire and King Balak actually hired him to curse Israel. Here's what's interesting. Balaam wasn't a Jewish person. Balaam had a relationship with the God of Israel. So obviously God had revealed himself to not just one culture, but many cultures. But, you know, Israel were the ones that followed him closely and they were his chosen people because that's what he decided to do. So here is um, Balaam being hired to curse Israel and he can't do it. And the reason he can't do it is because the God of Israel is saying, I'm not going to, I'm not, this is not happening. I'm not going to let this happen. So Balaam goes to Balak, the king, who was trying to defeat Israel. And he said, Balaam says to him, listen, I can't curse them. God's not having a bar of it. So we're going to have to change tactics. And this is what Balaam does. He goes, I've got a way that we can destroy them. We cannot destroy Israel from the outside in because God is with them. But if we're clever and if we bide our time, we can destroy them from the inside out. He says, take your women and place them around Israel. Let them camp around Israel. And of course, the men of Israel, they noticed these beautiful women that had camped all around them. And what did they do? Well, you know the end of that story. They went and slept with them. And then they married them. And then they brought these pagan, this pagan culture, these women, because it was forbidden to marry outside of Israel for this exact reason. They brought these um, women that were pagans into their homes as their marriage partners. And when they did that, those women said, hey, I still want to 
worship my pagan gods. And you can start to see what's happened. They started to allow it. So they couldn't destroy Israel from the outside in. They said, well, let's destroy it from the inside out. If we can shift the culture, if we can shift the belief system, if we can change who they worship from and they choose it for themselves, we can destroy them from the inside out. And that is exactly what happened. There was a blending, a merging of the God of Israel with pagan culture, and it did not go well. Listen to me, church. We cannot blend the word with the world. We cannot blend the word with the world. It doesn't fit. If we try to incorporate the world system and different cultures and beliefs and try to put it all in here, it's going to change the trajectory of what this says. It's going to lower the bar in some cases for people that need, we all need to understand that, you know, the bar is set high for us and none of us can actually obtain the level to which God has called us to live in terms of perfection. But the good news of the gospel is that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. So that's an important message and we cannot tweak it and we cannot change it and we cannot start to allow a world system to twist and distort what the Word of God teaches. Because in a hundred years from now, if we change what this says, it doesn't help us and it doesn't help them. We have to stick with what this says. We cannot say that there are multiple paths to God. Jesus is just one of them. Now, we're either right about this or we are wrong about this. If God is real and Jesus is the Son of God, then He is exclusively the way to get to God. That's it. No, There is no other way to God. We're either right or wrong. But what we can't do is change this to make other cultures and people feel more happy with where they are, not wanting to offend them. Listen, you've heard it said before, the gospel, not the presentation, the gospel in and of itself, it is offensive to people because it says that's not true. And we have to be willing to say that at different points. If we blend things together, we're not going to end up in a good way, but it's happened throughout time and history. In the Roman Empire, there was, there was many different emperors, but around 312 AD, Emperor Constantine had a vision and he saw a cross in the sky. And as it has been told since this day, he heard a voice that said, in this symbol, you will gain victory because he was going to war with an enemy. And so he looked at that and he essentially became a Christian and, and he actually did win that war. He did win that battle. And in 325 AD, he legalized Christianity because up until that point, it was illegal to be a Christian. Christian. And one of the reasons why is because all the Roman emperors, they blamed everything on this new religious sect called Christians. So when a new disease would happen, they'd say it was the Christians' fault. If there was a famine, the Christians' fault. The city's on fire, the Christians did this. They were blamed for everything. This thing that Emperor Constantine did was, in so many ways, it was the best and the worst thing that could have happened to Christianity. This is the good part. It was legalized. So people were free to pursue their faith. But Constantine now had a problem because he had a largely pagan culture and a Christian belief system, and he had to consolidate the two. Well, how do you do that? He decided that what they would do is start to put a 
thin veneer of Christianity over the pagan cultures that existed at the time. And so their festivals became Christian festivals. But not a lot had changed. They said, you know what? A lot of people here, they worship the sun god. So he got worship to all happen on the same day, Sunday, right? I think we worship Jesus on Sunday for many reasons. One of those would be that was the day that he was resurrected. Amen. But it happened to be that at the same time, he said, look, we'll put worship on Sunday. We'll put everything on Sunday. And if you've ever had the question in your heart or your mind, what does a Christmas tree really have to do with Jesus? The answer would be nothing. Absolutely nothing. There is no connection there, but you'll trace it back to this event because it was pagan culture being grafted into the Christian community. By the way, that's why we worship or we, sorry, we celebrate Christmas on December 25. We're told that it's Jesus's birthday. It wasn't. It's not Jesus's birthday. That was the day that they would worship Saturn. So now with all of that, knowing that there's all these pagan roots of some of these things that we do, Easter included, right? How, how, why are we still celebrating that stuff? Like, why do we do celebrate that? I'll tell you why. Because what I believe has happened in our culture is that those events, despite their pagan roots, have been redeemed for the kingdom of God. Because in our culture, when we speak about Christmas, people often don't think what I just told you. They think nativity scene, little baby Jesus. They think of Jesus. And I'll tell you right now, we need every opportunity we can in our culture to celebrate Jesus, who He is, the the incredible message that we call the gospel message, this encouraging, inclusive message. It's open to everyone who actually wants to make a decision to follow Jesus. If that's you today, You can do it. So it's a very inclusive message, but we trace it all back to these things. Think about this. You know, there are some uh, Christian people that believe, or they say that they're Christian people that believe that priests can't get married. Have you ever wondered why you can't find it in the Bible? Yep, because a lot of this stuff that has become religious culture is traced back to what happened here. So that's why we observe it, and, but it goes on. So Constantine legalized Christianity, but it was his successor, one of his successors, Theodosius, who actually became a Christian and it became the state religion in around 380 AD. And then what happened is the pagan cultures at the time they see the emperor make that decision and they said, right, well, we best become Christians. So without any shift in their heart, without any true conviction to follow Jesus, in an attempt to secure influence and power, they began to infiltrate the Christian community and infiltrate leadership in the church. And I told you something, that when you bring these two things together, they start to take a different trajectory. If you look at the history of the church, it's amazing. It really did start to go pretty far from what you read about in this book, didn't it? Didn't it? That's why what we need to do is we read this and we come back to everything that this says. We had blended pagan festivals with Christian culture. What was happening? I'll tell you what happened. Satan had changed tactics. I told you that Balaam changed tactics. What was his tactics? Look, we can't crush these people from the outside in. Maybe we can destroy them from the inside out. For hundreds of years, through Satan, the church 
was persecuted by any number of Roman emperors. The interesting thing about persecution is as you persecute the church, it seems to grow. Doesn't help. So after hundreds of years of trying to destroy the church, what does Satan say? It's very hard to destroy these people from the outside in. Let's destroy them from the inside out. And if we could just shift their values and get them to worship in a different way, little by little, fraction by fraction, we'll be able to change the trajectory of what the church is doing. See, the church became what we call compromised. You ever get that, your password that pops up, your password's been compromised on your computer and then you have to change it and it says all your passwords have been compromised. That's a scary thing. What does that mean? Well, it means that you were on the inside, you had the information and now it's out and there are other people on the inside and they can take your money and do everything. We're compromised. We have to change what we're doing. This is sort of what's happening here. The church became compromised the moment it married the world. The moment we married the world system, the moment we incorporated pagan culture into the Christian church, we were compromised in that moment. And here's what's worse. We actually had a husband, Jesus. We're supposed to be married to Jesus, but what happens is we're starting to, the the heart began to drift. It started to go in different directions. This is not what God had called us to. Satan tried to destroy Smyrna by persecution, didn't work. Persecuted people for hundreds of years. Outside in doesn't work. Little by little, from the inside out. If we can get the Christians to start shifting what they believe and changing their values and make small compromises, it'll lead to something different. Now, this letter was written to a real church in Pergamum. It also prophetically spoke to this event that happened in 380 AD. But it just as easily could have been written yesterday because this is exactly what is happening in our culture right now. This is exactly what is happening in our culture right now. Revisionists that want to come in and rewrite what's in here. I'm going to give you three points today and that's it. I'm, I'm done. Three things we can learn and we should not repeat. Number one. Don't rewrite what's written. Don't rewrite what's written. We cannot blend our contemporary culture with what this says. It says what it says. It means what it says. You can try all you want, but you cannot change the words that are in this book. And if we try to blend our culture with it, we're going to end up in a really bad place. But there is this pressure in our culture to do this right now, to make people feel more comfortable. It's a bad idea. It's not going to work. And I know what Jesus would say because he's already said it. I'll give you a great example of this. Last year, I was watching television and they were interviewing our state premier. And he said something really interesting. They were passing some legislation that would not allow pastors or teachers or counsellors to pray for a very specific group of people. It would make that prayer illegal. And on camera, he, he said, listen, he said, you, people that like, want that lifestyle, you're not broken. I'm not broken. We don't need to be fixed, right? And I just thought when I heard that, you couldn't be further from what Christians believe. 
See, see, they don't get it. They don't understand. They think that we are standing like in some lofty position from a place of arrogance and say that we're perfect and you guys have problems. That's oftentimes what people think, but that's not what Christianity believes at all. You know what we say? We say all of us are broken. Every single one of us, including me. If we try to marry the world system where we say no one is broken, then by definition, no one needs Jesus and the gospel is void. We don't need Jesus in a culture where everyone is fine, but we don't believe that. We believe that all of us are broken. We need to believe that all of us need to look to the cross, that every single one of us, we need to be forgiven for our mistakes. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. That's our message to the world. That's our message. So we're all broken and we need Him. But if we try to bring these ideas together, it's not going to help anyone. A hundred years from now, they'll have wished that we told them the truth. Amen? So we've got to figure this out. We've got to trust what's in here. We've got to believe what's in here. I didn't say <laughs> that you couldn't have doubts. And I didn't say that you couldn't question. And I didn't say that you shouldn't research. When you become a Christian, you don't give up your brain. When you become a Christian, you're supposed to study the Word of God, understand the Word of God, get to it, read it, break it down, buy a study Bible, learn what they were saying then and what it means to us now. Understand something of the eternal Word of God. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But I would add to that, choose wisely who you allow to influence your thoughts about this. Because you can find teachers anywhere. Hot tip today. Don't go to YouTube. Who are they? Where did these people come from? You know, it's astonishing to me. I read a book this week. It was talking to me about how influencers are shaping church culture. Influencers. But they don't necessarily have any kind of qualification. And yet they're shaping culture. And they're shaping what people believe, even about the Scriptures, even about church. Choose your teachers wisely. Choose who influences you wisely. Go to people that actually can read this thing and understand this thing and and are qualified to explain it and, and teach it. Because what the world needs right now is a church that understands the Word of God and can explain it and can tell them what our message is. And our message is what? The Gospel. That God is good. And we are broken. And we're saved by grace exclusively through Jesus Christ. I think that's an incredibly, it's, I know I just said the word exclusive, but remember, it's open to everyone. So it's extremely inclusive to anyone who actually wants it. It's it's a huge invitation. Number one, don't revise what's written. Number two, the small things are the big things. The small things are always the big things. Have you noticed that compromise always starts with the small things? And compromise in this way, little by little, shifting values, it always leads people to become really comfortable with their sinful lives. Just little by little, it's called compromise. Here's my question to you today. 
what thing could be happening in your life that you keep telling yourself, this isn't a big deal. I'll be okay. I can do this and I'll be fine. Other people shouldn't, but it's okay for me. Where have you started to shift your perspective? And what once you would never have done today, you're totally comfortable with, little by little. Is there any kind of area in your life where small compromises are being made? I can look at this. I can do this. I can say this. It won't affect me. I'll be fine. But you won't. That's what this letter is all about. So you're not going to be fine. You have to understand where the line is. You have to understand where, where, where you shouldn't go. What's the territory and the space that you shouldn't go towards? Where shouldn't you lean? Which way should you lean? You know, years ago, Sarah and I, we went on a cruise ship and uh, we had our firstborn son, Judah. He was just three months old. And uh, we took it out to the Great Barrier Reef. It was an amazing day, but it was kind of a little rough as we were on our way out there. Sarah does not do well with the rough seas. So she was a little bit sick. That was yuck. And uh, then it got to the time where we had to go snorkeling. I know they didn't need that detail, but anyway. Um, so we, we get to where we're going. And I said, look, give Judah to me. I'll hold him. You go for a swim. You'll, you'll feel better. You know, you get refreshed. You'll, you'll feel better. So she goes out for a swim. And here I am holding little baby Judah and walking around on the boat, getting jealous because everyone's coming in going, oh, look at the fish. And it's amazing. You know, and then finally, with about, you know, maybe 10 minutes to go before we were leaving that spot, uh, Sarah comes back to the boat. I said, how was it? She said, it was amazing. Well, I've been holding this baby the whole time and I didn't really have enough time to put on sunscreen. So I told myself, I'll be fine. <laughs> do you, do you see me? <laughs> like I am like white. <laughs> so white. And I said, I'll be I went for a swim. It was the biggest mistake of my life. I've never been burnt so badly. I told myself, it's only a little window. It's 10 minutes. I'll be okay for 10 minutes. Evidently, that's untrue. I actually was, I was terrible. I was so badly burnt that the next day I could barely move. And when I had to sit in the seat to catch the plane home, it was one of those moments where I started sitting back and I was like, oh, oh yep, yeah, yeah, slowly, slowly. And I was like, nobody move. Like, you know, don't, don't bump me. It was the worst. I was living a lie. I'll be fine. I'm not going to be fine. We can tell ourselves whatever we want, but when we do something that is going to harm us, it doesn't matter how you try to convince yourself. Little by little, you compromise what you believe. In the end, it's only going to end up hurting you. But here is the good news. Like if I just left this at that, that alone, I mean, that would be horrible. It's like, oh, if you've compromised, it's the worst. But here's the good news. You can change. Today. If there's an area of your life where you're compromised right now, whatever it is, you can change that today. You don't have to wait till tomorrow and you don't even have to work up to it. The Bible says you can change direction. You know what the call to this church was? Repent. 
Change your direction. Shift your trajectory. Don't keep going the way that you're going. You do this, you're going to end up in a bad place. And it's true because remember what Jesus said? He said, if you don't repent, I will come to you soon and make war. That is not a place that you want to be. But today is the day of salvation. Today is the day you can make a change. You don't have to continue to compromise. You just need to decide you're not going to do it anymore. And you ask the grace of God to be on your life. Help me, Jesus. And the moment you do that, things will shift and move in your life. That's point number two and point number three. And for me personally, I think this is probably the best, the best one of them all is that you get what you go for. What was the promise to the church that does repent? He said, you'll get something. What was the promise? It was the hidden manna. What's the hidden manna? It's Jesus. It's Him. He's the bread of life. He Himself is the greatest thing that you could ever get. It's the greatest gift on planet Earth is getting Jesus Himself, having a relationship with Him, talking to Him, hearing Him, having Him forgive you of your sins, walking with Him, worshipping Him. He is the greatest things. Don't look for a greater gift outside of Him. Look for the greater gift that's inside of a relationship with Him. So here's the thing, as I, as I finish, actually, why don't you stand to your feet? I just want to ask, is there an area, any area in your life right now where you compromise? Things that you're just, maybe you're crossing a line where you've, you just know in your heart of hearts that you're not supposed to be crossing. There's compromise somewhere. I just really believe that what God wants to do this morning is to give you an opportunity. Because here's the thing, guys, in all honesty, I can't pray some prayer over you and change that. I can't. I'll pray for you, but it only works with your partnership. I can't actually change that. So if I say, God, help them to not be compromised, right? Well, there's no, what am I, gonna, what am I really doing here? Nothing. I'm creating a space for you to come to God and say, Lord, I'm not going to compromise anymore. You partner with that and everything will shift and change in your life. Amen? Amen. Father, for anybody that's here right now that says, I'm not going to compromise anymore. I pray that God, that you would come, that you would help those who acknowledge that and say, I want to shift and change my life. Father, I pray that they wouldn't start to incorporate the world system into their theology, into their belief system, but God, that they would have a high view of your word, high enough to realize that we are totally, utterly saved and loved by you, and it's all on you. I pray for anybody that's stepping to the left or the right of that. Father, I pray you give them grace right now and help them to shift their life as they partner with you and chart a new trajectory for their life. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening to the Bright Weekly Podcast. We hope you're encouraged today and we'd love to see you at one of our services. So to connect further with us, head over to brightchurch.com.